0: today we're talking about the challenges uh, we face as an industry we're going to turn the spotlight on california today because as many of you know what happens in california has big ripple effects all across the country. So we think there's a lot of value in looking at California, at the California context, and try to pull out lessons to share with you that can be applicable to any region in the US. So we're going to talk about codes and standards. We're going to talk about legislation, utility rates, licensing classifications, and and a few other topics. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on any of these, and I'm excited to learn more from our guests today. We've got some great solar minds who think very deeply about these issues and are engaged in a variety of ways. So let's kick the show off. Today, we've got Barry Cinnamon. He is the CEO and owner of Cinnamon Energy Systems and the host of the great uh, solar podcast, uh, The Energy Show. And Jessica will share a link in the chat to Barry. show, so make sure to check it out. Barry, welcome back to the program. Great to see you again today. All right. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And let's also welcome Jeff Spies from Planet Plansets. Uh, Like Barry, Jeff has a long history in solar, and he's also the director and producer of the documentary film Solar Roots, which I got to see at my first NAPSIP years ago. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. Also joining us is Ben Davis, and he's been with us once before, but he's a policy associate at Kelsa, and he has been instrumental in leading the charge to keep solar thriving in California. Welcome back, Ben. Hey, Tom. And last but not least, um, we've got our two Bayoua RE product managers and the host of the amazing solar podcast, Solar Tech Talk. We've got Kate Collardson and Aaron Bingham. Welcome to you both. And Jessica is going to share a link to your show as well. Good
1: to be here. Thanks, oh.
0: So let's get rolling. Uh, Kate, let's kick it off with you. Um, I've heard before that solar policy starts in California. And the framing of this show is, as goes California, so goes the rest of the country. So why is it important for folks in other states to be aware of what's happening in California? If I'm an installer in D.C. or Ohio, why should I pay attention? Uh, And I know that you are in Colorado. uh, So if you have any specific examples you could share from your state, that would be great as well. Yeah, why should folks pay attention to California?
1: Well, I, I think in our industry we see or saw that the birth of rooftop solar as as an industry start in California. That that really is where you know, as Jeff can attest, the the very beginnings of our industry uh, were formed. And and in places like uh, Colorado, we do watch. Uh, what's going on on a policy level in California? Because that it it does set the precedent for the rest of the U.S. As you framed in the question, it really does. Um, for instance, net metering uh, as uh, a policy—that's something that started in California, moved to Colorado. Uh, we've got things like um, oh, the renewable portfolio standards. Um, uh, interconnection standards, so solar access laws. Um, these are all policies, laws that came out of the state of California and then moved to other states around the US. And and so really it does set the precedent for where we are as an industry. You know, so it, it all starts in that state.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Kate. Um, and I would encourage our audience to follow up with your own perspectives or thoughts in the chat. Just shoot us questions and we'll answer them as we go. You know, if you're in a different state than California, what are you tracking? You know, what's, what's resonated? What's been helpful for you? Um, to that point, do any of the other panelists want to follow up on Kate's thoughts? What should folks be tracking uh, in the US? And why should they be paying attention to California? Wave your hand, go off mute. Yeah, uh, Barry.
2: Barry, I mean, I'm not gonna talk about anything specific related to solar, but but it's just the, the way kind of, maybe it's the way the wind is blowing across the country, but um, you know, Kate, you forgot about hippies and you forgot about emission standards and you forgot about organic food. So um, most of those are good things. And uh, solar is kind of also spreading, um, spreading eastward from California and also good states like uh, Colorado.
0: Hippies, all that good stuff. Ben, you, you, you waved your hand.
3: Yeah, I was just going to add, um, I, love all, I love all the uh, praise California is getting. Um, we uh, in California, the clean energy policies were originally driven by concern about air pollution, right? In the 1970s and the 1980s, Los Angeles had some of the worst pollution in the country. Uh, because of all the cars. So California, we enacted clean car standards and fuel economy standards, and then it rippled across the country, right, with New Jersey and Massachusetts and other states following suit. Um, and as Kate says, this this is a, this is has been the trend, not just for, for a range of clean energy policies, in, including solar. So I, I think with California being such a leader related to clean energy, right, if California were to make a decision to turn its back on customer-sided solar, it would be a statement to the rest of the country, um, and we should unfortunately expect other states um, to follow suit.
4: And, and Jeff, I might just add uh, yeah. that California, in essence, I believe that the modern solar industry was born in the state of California. I spent a lot of years researching that, and I, you know, while there were contributions made all over the world the industry emanated from California and you had more off-grid homes in Northern California using solar back in that era than anywhere else in the world. And then when that grid tie boom started, it was just a higher volume of uh, uh, applications in California. As a result, we, we got to develop the policies because of sheer volume, the number of installations going in residentially and now commercially uh, really prompted the building departments to ask the question, what should we look at and what requirements should there be? And so California is the trendsetter for better or worse. And as goes California, often so goes the rest of the country as it relates to policy issues. And we, and j-
3: just to that point, real quick. So, California, we have twelve. We're twelve percent of the U.S. population. We have forty percent of the customer-sited solar um, in the country. I, we, I am Great proud context.
0: to say. Yeah, Aaron, any thoughts before we move on?
5: Yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd add that um, you know, as California is one of the most developed solar markets, um, and, and our uh, Our alignment on the legislative side, I think, is also a little bit more developed maybe than uh, in in many other parts of the country. Because we have this more mature stance, when we see pushback from utilities, and we'll be talking about this more today, um, California is one market in which those utilities can really test their ability to drive that conversation in a specific way and make sure that, that their perspective is the one that's being representative represented, excuse me, in upcoming legislation. And that creates some real challenges because if it's successful here, it has a very good chance of being successful in other states with other legislative bodies.
0: For sure. Thanks for that context, everybody. Um, Ben, I'm going to come to you next. Um, The solar industry is growing and maturing rapidly. Um, This is more of a basic 101 question and not specific necessarily to California, but the mechanisms that allow our industry to thrive uh, specific markets to flourish they don't appear out of thin air you know as we just t- chatted about there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that those markets are or uh, you know that they can flourish so severe impediments to solar deployment can pop up tomorrow so what should folks understand about this complicated and delicate environment the industry is in
3: yeah um you're you're Right, Tom, the market mechanisms that allow for the solar industry to grow or even to persist, they don't appear out of nowhere, right? Yet energy metering, streamlined permitting, subsidies for solar 10 years ago, right? Subsidies for energy storage today. These are specific policies that are the result of advocacy and media attention and pressuring elected officials. Um, And if the utilities had their way, they would kill net metering, (laughs) they would place fees on customer-sided solar, they would create barriers to interconnection. And so um, every day it is a necessity for the industry to both fight for pro-solar policies and fight to stop anti-solar policies. Because if we didn't do that, there would be no customer-sided solar because the utilities and other stakeholders would purposely create a market environment in which solar wouldn't be cost effective. Essentially, every installer that is putting uh, solar on a roof or on a property today is able to do so because you know of the history of, of a lot of solar installers, you know, and a lot of environmental groups and a lot of allies taking action to to make sure those market me- mechanisms are in place uh, for
0: that to happen. Mm-hmm, Great, great context. Um people's ears should perk up when they hear that. Barry, this question uh, is for you. Um, so let's look at one of the biggest stakeholders in the industry, Ben brought up utilities. Uh, so this, so so Kate is a Colorado resident, Jeff's I believe in Arizona, um, and the rest of us are in California. But in terms of California, are you able to give us an overview of how the utilities are structuring their rates for consumers? And, you know, and it's often in opposition or in reaction to you know, uh, the thing, the solar in general. So I'm hoping this part of the conversation can help shed some light on how different stakeholders make their arguments.
2: Sure, th- thanks. Um, well, it the, the rates all started um, with what are called flat rates. In other words, it was you know, 12 cents a kilowatt hour, no matter when you use it, no matter how much you use it. Um, PG&E started about 20, 25 years ago. To, with two adjustments to that. One is tiered rates, which is the more you use, the more you pay. And uh, that was bad for big users. And they also started with time of use rate, which is if you use electricity, when there's a lot of electricity, the electricity you buy is cheap. Um, and, and so it, for both the tiered rates and the time of use rates, solar was a, a, a very good way of reducing somebody's electric bill because they bought less electricity and they were also, able to avoid using electricity at peak times, which used to be 10 to 12. So what's happening with the utilities in California now is everybody's moving towards time of use rates. Currently, the highest rates are from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. Bummer, because that's when it's usually not too sunny. The reason why they're highest then is because that's when there's a lot of demand for electricity. And also, that's when there's not as much supply. There's a lot of supply of electricity in the middle of the day from solar. Um, now, the, the, the impact of that four to nine peak is that if you have batteries that you charge up during the day, you can now use the energy in your batteries to avoid buying expensive power. Good for batteries. Um, let me back up one sec, really coming back to your question uh, about um, the, the infrastructure and who benefits. It's <laughs> important to understand the utility business model. So public utilities get a guaranteed profit based on their net assets. Their assets are things like trucks, buildings, land, and also solar plants they build, transmission lines they build, and big battery systems they put in. So the more assets they have, the more profits they get. And the more customers put in these assets, solar and storage, the less profits the utilities get. So what's happening is that we're moving really towards flatter rates and there are um, changes that are being proposed by the utilities where there's higher charges for solar customers, a fixed fee per based on the size of your system, reduction in the reimbursement of net metering, maybe 50% of the retail rate, and more interconnection hassles. So that's the trend and um, you know, organizations like CALSA and SIA are fighting tooth and claw to avoid the damage that it would have to uh, solar customers, existing solar customers and new solar customers.
0: Yeah, Ben, you have your hand up and uh, please feel free to answer Barry's question, but I'm also wondering if you could tie this into what does it mean for the expansion of the grid as well? Because the utilities are really interested in that.
3: Yeah, I um, the utility business models, as Barry said, is, is based on selling electricity to customers. Um, And if customers are generating their own clean energy, it is a threat to their business models. It's unfortunate that that is how things are structured, right? Because the goal of a, I think the goal of a utility should be to keep the lights on, to protect the environment, and to keep bills as low as possible while doing the first two things. And customer-sided solar and customer-sided solar and storage should be an aid to utilities in accomplishing these goals, right? We're going to have to, it, to your question, Tom, we're going to have to upgrade when we electrify homes and we electrify cars, that's either going to require the build out of utility scale infrastructure or ho- solar panels on roofs and batteries and garages, right? So it, it is, it, in an ideal world, solar and storage would help a utility accomplish their goals but in reality, because the utilities view customer-sided solar as competition, because they sell less electricity, just every day they're trying to stamp out rooftop solar. So if we could get the utilities to realize that we could be partners with them, that would be a great way to path forward. Um, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, <laughs> or at least among the, the big utilities, especially the investor-owned utilities in California yeah. um, across the country.
0: Jeff, I want to ask you a question about on the storage topic, but let me just ask a, a very
4: naive question. Why can't we all just get along? Well, because I think the utilities fundamentally look at anybody else that generates electricity, even if for their own use as a competitor. So they have a very, by and large, and this doesn't apply to all utilities necessarily to the same degree, but they look at solar, solar plus storage as less future revenue. Every solar panel that goes up means less money that they and their infrastructure make and keep in mind that you might think oh well they downscale and you know get more distributed generation but they're like yeah but we want to have all those cushy jobs within our ranks and that's the what we're fighting so we've got a large entrenched force that's really well organized really well funded and we're trying to change the way things are done and that doesn't come easy for sure
0: great um, you kind of asked my storage question, which was, does storage pose
4: the biggest long-term threat to utilities? Um, and if so, why? You know, it's interesting because the average consumer who puts a battery system in, and if they don't live in California, the likelihood that they can cost justify that battery on uh, time shifting, like Barry was describing, is probably pretty slim. But I think they do see it as a, as a threat because the expectation is that energy storage costs will come down in the future, making that more cost effective. I look at it a different way. I think that energy storage is going to play a core role that you can't play with grid power, which is battery backup. Our our transmission and distribution infrastructure is aging in this country, just like the roads. Look what happened in Texas. They have a system that wasn't well-maintained and there isn't the funds to maintain it. So they're just telling their customers, get used to regular power outages. That's the norm in California. And we'll see that ripple throughout the rest of the country. And that's where batteries will take off first. But the utilities don't like to see any customers generating their own electricity. They wanna put in as many barriers to that happening as they possibly can. So, So energy storage is another freeing element. It's not a panacea yet. It's not cheaper than the grid, but the utilities look at the future and think, that that could be a big obstacle to their growth, which is ironic because an average electric car uses as much power as a house. So if everybody's gonna be driving electric cars, there's gonna be plenty market for grid power. Awesome. Um, Aaron, I, I wanna to come to you uh, right after Ben and
0: ask you, how are we gonna reduce the cost of storage in California? But Ben, would you like to hop on what Jeff just said and add your two cents? I think
3: the, um, I think the utilities are terrified about customer-sided batteries. Uh, right now with PV-only projects, so uh, customers with PV are buying electricity from the utility uh, when the sun goes down and before the sun comes up. With batteries, those customers are gonna be storing their clean energy and then not pulling from the grid, pulling from the battery uh, when the sun sets. And that the utilities, I think, are looking at energy storage systems and they are freaking out because all of a sudden, the solar customers that used to still have to get some of their electricity from the grid um, are going to be able to buy hardly any any energy from the grid. And that, back to the points Jeff and Barry and others were making, that is, that is the fundamental threat to their business
0: model. Thanks. And we'll come back a little bit more and talk about this topic. But Aaron, how... Are we going to make the cost of storage in California come down, or anywhere in the country? Sure. Um, I mean, there there are of course
5: market forces that are um, that have been driving down the costs of most storage solutions over the last ten years quite significantly. So that's that's a that's had a huge impact overall. Um, but in addition to those forces. What we're also seeing is like streamlining of permitting and installation processes, um, stream streamlining of design processes, that are enabling, um, you know, folks installing the systems to do so more efficiently. Um, those are all contributing to uh, reduction in costs for installing energy storage. On top of those kind of hard cost reduction, well, the hard and soft costs in there. There's um, there's also, I think, an opportunity for some innovative financing solutions to contribute to cost reduction for energy storage installation. Um, you know, they're, they're largely in their infancies, but concepts like virtual power plants um, to partner with utilities to provide you know, power as needed on demand. At utility scale, from you know hundreds of different sources across a region, I think um, you know present an opportunity for for some some interesting financing to um, help reduce the overall costs that customers see when installing those those solutions.
0: Mm-hmm well maybe let's just let me ask a quick question about incentive programs and and maybe barry i'll kick it over to you but um when we look at the sgip program here in california uh created by the cpuc um, that program is managed uh and i might be wrong here but it's administered through pg and e um so that there is there a conflict of interest there how did that come about uh what are there, what are the pros and cons there
2: Well, the the SGIP program is administered by PG&E in in their territory, but I believe there are more independent managers in in other IOU territories. We've we've been through this before 15, 20 years ago. The original California Energy Commission and Center program was managed by PG&E and they continually made it more and more complicated and and very expensive to get the rebate. PG&E is doing exactly the same thing. It can be simple. But then if it's simple, more people will put in batteries and they'll get less revenue. So you've got the fox guarding the hen house and the fox is just eating all the eggs. Um, They're making it hard. The other problem with the ESTA program, CALSA did a terrific job getting, I I think it was like 750 million. It was billions of dollars that they set aside. The utilities lobbied very heavily, not to thwart the concept of a rebate program, but to try to direct all the money into customer categories that really weren't as robust as the customers that really wanted to buy systems. So for all intents and purposes, although there was a lot of money available for that, most of the installers in the state are not able to take advantage of that money. Now, it is going towards lower income customers and that's great. Um, It's also directed towards people who have had public safety power shutoffs and wildfires and, and medical needs. But it's so complicated with PG&E that you know, here at Sentiment Energy Systems, two years ago, we just said, we're not going to try and get a $2,500 rebate for a customer if it's going to take six to nine months and $3,000 worth of our paperwork effort. And, and so that's that's kind of too bad. Other states can do a better job.
0: Yeah. I want to start to transition away from this uh, this topic in particular, but does anyone else want to add anything to the to the utility uh, discussion? What what do folks in the rest of the country need to be thinking about? Maybe that's a good place to leave
4: it. Jeff, well, yeah, yeah. yeah my, I guess my only uh, comment there is the markets in most states aren't very well developed, and having some engagement with the policymakers, the utilities. So uh, getting those relationships established is really important so that when these decisions do get made, when the market starts to pick up, that you don't have bad decisions and bad policy being put into place. Because I can guarantee you the, the the solar people won't like the policy if they aren't engaged in it.
0: Thanks. Okay. So before we move on to, uh, licensing classification, which is another topic we have on the books today, let's answer our next trivia question. And that is what state became the first to generate more than 5% of its annual utility scale, electricity from solar power in 2014. And this answer is probably not surprising and kind of on point, but it was California. So, With that, let's go move on to licensing classification. And Barry, I'd actually like to pop back to you now. And something that you brought up when we chatted last week, um, specific to the C-10 license, can you kick us off and talk about the role of licensing classification and how that impacts solar and storage deployment and or the, uh, the fights around that?
2: Sure. Um, in, in California, there are two main licensing classifications that are allowed to install solar and in storage. One is C10, which is a electrician's license. It's a great license, takes 8,000 hours worth of training and all kinds of electrical work to get. The other license that's important is C46 solar. It's good for thermal, it's good for uh, solar and it's good for solar with storage. What's happened is that the utilities via the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers are are trying to prevent solar installers on the C-46 license from installing a battery as either just any battery or an added on battery. The current license classification if you read it carefully and interpret it like the IBEW wants to interpret it basically says, that a solar installer can install solar and batteries, but if a customer just wants to add a battery, it has to be done with a C10 electrician license. Not, and C10 license is not impossible C10 license to add a battery. You know, any customer, solar customer, you got five kilowatts of solar, you wanna add a battery. The work that's done on site has to be done by a certified electrician, at working one-to-one with, certif- with a certified apprentice. And these certification requirements are pretty much exclusively the purview of um, the IBEW. It's hard to get people certified without it. And they're very expensive. You can imagine how hard it is to hire people now, Try and hire certified electricians and apprentices. And what ends up happening is it's very, ex- it's very hard for installers who have a C46 license, who've been doing solar for 30 years, to actually add a battery. And, and you might ask, why does the IBEW care? Well, it's back to the utility issue. The IBEW does most of the work for utilities. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're friends. They're in the pocket of the utilities. They get paid by the utilities. And the IBEW workers want to have more utility scale batteries and solar installed. And they basically wanna stop solar customers from adding batteries from ordinary solar contractors. So it's tricky. And CALSA has been fighting that battle pretty hard for three years. And once again, we're going up against utility interests and uh, the IBEW, which is a
0: huge union. Thanks, Barry. We're about halfway through the program here. I want to touch next on legislation. But if anyone else wants to add anything on this licensing classification topic, now is a great time.
4: Jeff. Yeah, yeah. I'll just uh, mention that here recently, the consultant company that was hired to review this uh, Berkeley Labor Center uh, uh, has compiled the, their report. I don't know what the status is. on reading that, but my senses is, having been involved in this discussion since it first cropped up, that this has been a very uh, politically sophisticated attack on the solar and storage industry, one that's serious and one that contractors need to be aware of if we're going to preserve the market. Because the the problem is all the Licensed electricians and, and apprentices are fully occupied already with non solar work. There's not, even if we wanted to hire them, there's none available to hire. So we've got a fundamental crisis with this licensing classification issue that needs to be addressed within the next several months.
1: And I'll just add real quick that this is not unique to California by any means. Um, this, the, the IBEW is, is working. Um, on this exact issue um, in Colorado and other states uh, across the U.S., and so this is this is a point that is absolutely important for everyone in our industry, no matter where you are um, in the U.S. to to watch out for.
2: And and I'm a little paranoid that any kind of positive federal legislation for solar and storage may have some kind of organized labor or union requirements, which would also tend to limit the fast growth of the market.
0: Okay, thanks everyone. So let's wrap up this section and move on to legislation. As Ben mentioned at the top, Creating flourishing solar markets is often driven by legislation. Net energy metering that also already came up in California it was passed in 1996. The goal was to diversify the energy resource mix, stimulate economic growth, encourage private investment, and it was very successful. So, I'd like to look at one recent fight against net metering in California. And, Ben, I'd like to turn to you to kick us off here. CalSA was instrumental in helping defeat the recent California AB 1139. Thank you for your action on that. Um, as I mentioned, this bill would have made dramatic changes to net metering. Can you quickly set up the context, uh, for those who aren't familiar, who are the players? What actions did it take to get that bill defeated? What do folks need to think about when they when they look at uh, 1139?
3: Eleven thirty nine. What would have been the end of custom recited solar in California? Um, It it was probably the single greatest threat the industry has faced in years. Uh, It would have reduced the export rate to three or four cents a kilowatt hour, Uh, and then on top of that, it would have tacked on a seventy to ninety dollar per month charge uh, for residential systems, more for commercial systems, and that would have made the payback period on a solar system 50 years, which as folks know, is a little longer than the lifetime of a system. So customers would have abruptly stopped installing solar. And it was the utilities and their union, as Barry said, the IBEW on one side, and it was the solar industry and environmental groups and customer groups on the other. Um, And Perhaps most concerningly is that this piece of legislation was authored by the second most powerful legislator in the assembly. Um, And in terms of how it was uh, so handily defeated, um, it was uh, I think a combination of just real facts winning um, and politicians facing political pressure so, legislators, they came to understand how AB 1139 would impact schools, would impact low income customers, would hurt the environment, would hurt resiliency. So, just on a, on a you know, our side, he, he said for she said thing, I think our, our side won because the facts were on our side. Um, And then they also the legislators also received hundreds, if not thousands, of phone calls into their offices from their constituents. So when we actually sat down to talk to them about 1139, they said, what's going on? This came out of nowhere. I've received 1500 calls in the past week. Um, So um, ultimately, the bill did not have the votes on the assembly floor. floor. Um, It was twenty seven. I votes it needed forty one, um, so it actually fell uh, uh, quite uh, quite significantly f- significantly sh- short. Thanks, Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the bill the bill died uh, before it could make its way to the US Senate or make its way to the governor's desk.
0: Thanks for that setup, Aaron. I, I want to pop over to you um, as a follow up. You know, I, during this this fight, I saw you out there continuously rallying people, making calls, sending emails can you talk briefly just about you know what that means to you as a member of the solar industry to have fought against that and and succeeded it must have been quite gratifying
5: it, it really was um, and I think that the um, the you know organizations within California that were leading the charge like Cal said did an excellent job of ensuring that you know folks from all parts of our industry and um, you know any customers that um, would potentially be affected by Changes like the ones that were proposed in eleven thirty nine were aware of what was potentially coming down the pike, so that you know they could speak out and, like Ben said, kind of reach out to their legislators and make sure that they knew what the impact of 1139 AB eleven thirty nine would be for for their constituents. Um, so it it was incredibly gratifying to see it defeated. At the at the same time, um, I I got to say that. This was, you know, not my first time looking at um, this kind of legislation, but it certainly was one of the most sophisticated attacks. And, um, you know, there there was another player in my mind that I think is worth mentioning, and that's the third party consulting group that was brought on to um, do the analysis of like what the, um, you know, what the impact of the bill would be and, um, you know, how solar should be um, valued going forward as a part of the, um, you know, Electrical infrastructure within California, and you know their their analysis was incredibly biased, and um, you know the 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 points that they were making were were kind of twisted truths, right? Um, so we we really do have to watch out and make sure that we're constantly engaged in this conversation. You know, the utilities let us know that they're not afraid of um, pointing at PV customers and saying you the the power that um you know the the uh, excuse me the system that you had installed was subsidized by um you know lower income californians um and you know that's that's not fair that shouldn't be happening It, it, it was a very twisted way of um of presenting the state of affairs within the california solar market and the um energy market more broadly so it was it was gratifying but it was also a little bit um, concerning to see what's what's likely going to be a part of our future going forward in every single state
0: thanks for that um ben we got a question from an audience member do you think assemblywoman gonzalez's mind was changed at all about the impact of the bill or did she hold firm to her original position
3: i, I don't think uh assemblymember gonzalez's mind was changed at all um Telling Member Gonzalez, she was the, the author of AB 1139, um, and as I said, the, most, uh, the second most powerful person in the Assembly because she's chair of the Appropriations Committee. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we changed her mind at all. She did make some amendments uh, to, a series of amendments to the bill, um, but I don't, A, a lot of those amendments made the bill worse, and B, I don't think she made those amendments because she saw the light or the sunshine. I think she made those amendments because she thought that's, that's what she needed to do to um, have the bill progress. Um, I, and then in terms of um, changing the mind or the mentality of, of other legislators, um, I think it was good to, um, I, I, I think there were a lot of good conversations that happened in legislators' offices about the value of solar and the importance of solar. Um, but the bill itself, even though it failed, I think gave left a um, lasting impact on many of the legislators and their staff, which is that even though they voted no on the bill, they still now have this idea in their heads that a oh, solar um, rooftop solar is something that needs to be reformed. It's unfair. It hurts low income customers. So that is a mentality that. Um, that now I think, due to eleven thirty nine, even though we defeated it, that's now a mentality that is um, more present in the legislature uh, now than it was before, um, and that will create a problem uh, in next legislative cycle um, and in years
0: after. Mm-hmm. Great, and I, and I want to see if Jeff or Barry has any other thoughts. You know, there is another potential fight coming up with them uh, in the future, but Kate. You're in Colorado. You were watching this this fight play out, and you're very involved in the industry. What was going through your mind as you're watching this? Um, was it important to you to track this? You know, if so, what were you paying attention to, and how are you thinking about it?
1: Well, I, I was paying attention to it. I it, I felt it was a very important fight to to track um, and and to participate in to the extent that I could, which was kind of limited. I don't have legislators that I can call in California, I'm not their constituent, but I do have friends who live in California. And, um, and so I, I worked on social media and calling friends and saying, Hey, this bill is terrible. And if you think that solar is important, please speak up and call your legislator and, and tell them not to vote for this. And the reason for that is that it, as we've said throughout this this show a few times, like, if it happened in California, <laughs> then Colorado might be next. It, it, you know, it, it's going to happen eventually in in, in Colorado, at, at least, or at least in my mind. Um, that's what I was thinking, and so I was I was working hard to to you know, in my limited capacity, to do what I could to to fight it.
0: Right. I was gonna sh- I was gonna save this engagement question near the end, uh, but but Jeff, I, I want to ask you. You know, well, all of you are very engaged in the industry in a variety of ways, whether it's your livelihoods, your interest in the technology, becoming part of a community or building a community. Just broadly speaking, you know, Jeff, let's start with you. What does being engaged, you know, in the industry mean to you, and how does that related to to these fights that we're talking about?
4: Uh, just first of all, I like to thank everybody here. being engaged and quite honestly that's the key to us effectively battling our adversaries if we don't have the support of the masses especially in a coordinated entity like kelsa uh the likelihood that we'll be able to battle back against these well-funded intelligent people that want to kill solar and storage is is, we, we won't we won't win that fight so you know banding together and and doing things like calling your assembly member calling your state senator letting them know your opinions, that absolutely works. I know it might sound cliche, but it absolutely works. So for me, being involved is effectively trying to champion these causes. I do uh, chair the Codes and Standards Committee for CALSA. So most of my activity with California Solar and Storage Association is helping address issues that relate to codes and standards, and there's quite a few of those. So that's where I dedicate most of my hours as it relates to solar advocacy and, and uh, you know Ben and Barry and, and Kate and Aaron and so many other people are actively engaged in these discussions with the committee work and volunteering their time in various codes and standards activities or legislative initiatives. So we really rely on that, that par- broad participation. Don't think you can't make a difference. You absolutely can, but you must get involved to do so.
0: Real quick, Barry, what does it mean to you to be engaged in the solar industry?
2: You know, there's there's really two advantages. One's a short-term advantage. You know, medium-term advantage is just to make sure that the policies are in effect, so that you know, my like 20 years of previous customers can benefit from solar and storage, and then we've got new customers going ahead. Um, and, and it's really just the right thing to do from a kind of a um, a non-altruistic, specific business standpoint. By being engaged, people, you can understand what's coming down the pipe by going to, by being a member of the, the California Solar Storage Association or any association, SIA, and participating, you know what the fights are and you kind of have a heads up on what's going to happen. So by being actively engaged with CalSEA and then CALSA, I knew that batteries were going to be big. So I was able to prepare my business for that. And, and be more well positioned to take advantage of the future. So two advantages, one, it's for everybody, two, it really helps business owners. And, and I strongly encourage everybody to not only join, but um, invest money and participate in your, your uh, state solar association.
0: We're gonna start to wrap up, but on this question of being engaged, Kate, I'd like to bounce over to you. We, we haven't talked about codes and standards yet, but it's a big part. Uh, of the discussion uh, we could be having here. You know, um, you've been involved deeply for many years. You've advocated for people to get involved in the development of codes and standards. Uh, Ben was joking, I think during our setup meeting, you know, that half the people on this call, you represent, you know, like the half the industry voices um, on the codes and standards panels. Can you talk about why this is such an important and influential topic?
1: Yeah, I mean, codes and standards dictate what we install where we install it how we install it that's this is these are important well they're important to our industry without and as jeff said earlier if out if we don't have a voice in the creation of these codes and standards we're not going to like what they end up being and i think that, that jeff can probably uh, speak to this as well but it it is it's we've seen equipment Created because of codes over the past ten years. Um, these are the, it. It really a, a, a change in a code cycle has a has a huge shift on on our creates a huge shift in our industry on on in all kinds of levels. So I, I think it's very important for us to to be involved in the process to make our voices heard to make sure that that we're you know on board with with some of the changes that that come at us.
4: Jeff, anything to add there? Well, we're currently, and I just submitted an application yesterday to join the standard technical panel for heat alarms so that we can try to have some impact on the evolving language that will allow batteries to possibly go back into garages, which is where two-thirds of them were installed. Unfortunately, with the newer code, uh, putting a battery in a garage becomes a complex issue because we don't have heat alarms that are officially approved for unconditioned space. So this is just a one element of the type of work we're doing in the world of codes and standards that really impacts significantly the industry. I'm sure Barry can echo that concern. The technical limitations that have been put on energy storage systems in the Bay Area, where he works, have really influenced whether you even want to do a, a battery installation. You know, and, and,
3: and
2: along those points, it adds a lot of cost to the system. And um, the limitation of the building codes, which is the battery has to be three feet away from another battery and three feet away from an egress window or door or gas meter. It means that for many houses, you could put one bat, you could put two batteries in, but now you can only put one. I have a system I put in uh, three years ago in my house. It's got two batteries. Right now, where I put those two batteries, I couldn't even fit one battery because of windows and electric meters and things like that. The industry is working really hard
4: to resolve that, but it fundamentally um, delays things and adds costs. But one advantage for companies like Barry, by nature of his involvement with Kelsa, he at least has heads up to the bad stuff that's coming down the road so he can adjust his business accordingly. And did you want to add something there?
3: If we save net energy metering and keep net metering strong and create subsidies for batteries, it will be all for naught if all of a sudden you can't install batteries, right? Because of some code issue or you can't install solar panels or you can't get a solar permit application through a building department. So we need to have, yes, we need to defend net energy metering and we need to push back against the utilities, but we have to also pay attention to codes and standards at the same time because if you get one, but not the other, the industry you we're not going to be able to install systems we're just not going to be able to get permits or we're not going to be able to install batteries um in garages so doing both is is crucial
4: jeff and i might add that doing it through a trade organization like kelsa is so much more effective than trying to do it independently there's no doubt in my mind that when kelsa speaks on these issues the entities that matter pay attention. But if you're an individual installer just complaining about something you don't like, you get very little uh, effectiveness in that. So CALSA is an incredibly effective way for the industry to contribute to the betterment of codes and standards.
0: That's great. Barry, I'd actually like you to, so for those folks listening out there who are like, my state doesn't have a CALSA, you know, can you, you've been very involved with CALSA for years. Can you just give me a brief synopsis of how the organization started, what involvement looks like, what are the milestones? You've got 40 seconds.
2: Uh, Well, it really started (laughs) in the solar thermal business um, to have a license classification for putting in solar hot water systems. CalSa pushed hard to get net metering passed in 1995. We fixed the Solar Rights Act in 2004, which restricted where, which, which allowed jurisdictions to restrict solar on aesthetic basis, net metering fights every three to five years as chip storage incentives. And then we helped organize the Solar Rights Alliance which we may be talking about uh, later. And and really I have to take my hat off to the previous executive directors and really Bernadette Del Chiara who's a fantastic executive director now and President Ed Murray um, who are just doing all they can to, to get us through this next battle at the CPUC. But I'd say, You get an organization like house has started and it's funded and its members are, are are contributing but we can never rest because we still have these big utility
0: dinosaurs that are that are still much bigger than us amazing great synopsis i think you almost hit 40 seconds um to the solar rights alliance piece this is a really interesting organization that folks should know about kate um, I've asked you to just give us a quick uh, little introduction to that. Um, I connected with the executive director, Dave, but he wasn't able to come on the show today. But can you give us a brief description for our contractor audience? Because I think they'd be really interested to hear about what they do.
1: Yeah, so the Solar Rights Alliance, we have something similar in, in Colorado. We call it uh, Citizens. And uh, it's it, the idea is that when someone uh, gets has solar installed on their home? The the contractor then invites them to to sign up to be a part of the Solar Rights Alliance, um, and and then the the folks out at the Solar Rights Alliance have a list of of solar homeowners who, when they're fighting uh, at the legislative level, they can. Go to the the assembly members and say, look, here's this list of tens of thousands of, of homeowners who support this pro solar uh, legislation that we're fighting for, and and likewise, it, folks earlier were talking about the thousands of phone calls that um, that assembly members received during the, the fight on AB 1139, and that, that that was a direct result of of a call to action uh, by the the Solar Rights Alliance, where where they reached out there and said you know, the, the, reach out to your members. Now is the time, you know, jump to action and, and they did.
0: Well, I think we're, we're about four minutes out. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, as we wrap up, I, I'd like to ask each of the panelists uh, a final question, but I'm gonna say thank you to them. Uh, Barry Cinnamon of Cinnamon Energy Systems and the host of the energy show, which you should all subscribe to. Thank you for joining us today. Got you. Jeff Spees from Planet uh, Sets, director and producer of the documentary Solar Roots. Thank you very much for sharing your insight. Appreciate it. Ben Davis, Policy Associate at CALSA. Thanks for joining us again. Wonderful having you. And Aaron and Kate, uh, project managers here. I see you every day, but I never get tired of seeing you guys. Uh, wonderful advocates for the industry and super smart folks. Thank you for coming. So to wrap up our show, um, I usually ask panelists to give us like their top two takeaways from the conversation. Today, I think we've, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot. So I'm going to do something a little different and steal from one of my favorite podcasts uh, for a segment called One Cool Thing. Um, so this, I'm going to ask you each for your one cool thing. This could be a movie, a a place that you visited, an idea, something you want to do, but anything you want to share with the audience, it doesn't have to be solar related, but Ben, why don't we start with you? Um, do you have a one cool thing you'd like to share with us?
3: Uh, last night I read the transcript of, uh, Britney Spears' conversation with the judge on her conservatorship. That was an entertaining 15 minutes, um. I have a lot of sympathy for Brittany, and it seems like our conservatorship um, system needs some reforms, um, but that was one. I don't know if it's a cool thing, but it's one thing, one interesting thing.
0: Thanks, Ben. That is a cool and interesting <laughs> thing. Uh,
4: Jeff, how about you? you have a cool thing you'd like to share with us? Well, that solar panel that you see here, the tall one that's kind of brown, was one of the earliest that was installed in that uh, uh, that, during that era, the birth of the home PV power movement in the early 80s in California. So that was installed in in a homestead in Humboldt County. And I took it off about uh, five years ago and stuck it here in my office. And it's just something cool to look at to remind me of the, the birth of the industry in Northern California and hopefully inspire me to help continue that industry's growth and make our energy system a lot cleaner than it's been. Love it. Definitely a cool thing. Barry,
0: how about you? One cool thing?
2: You know, I, I, I think it's going to be really cool when we can replace all of our service vehicles, our pickup trucks, with uh, Ford F-150 Lightnings and, and Silverados. Um, Silverados <laughs> not out yet, but, you know, just the concept of, you know, we don't drive that far, but um, we'll charge up the, the our trucks with solar on the roof of our office, and uh, there'll be a lot of other capabilities within that vehicle. So I'm looking forward to, Heavy duty, solar powered electric
0: vehicle pickups. Very cool. Kate, one cool thing.
1: So this was cool and and also slightly terrifying. I went to a networking event last week. Um, It was in person and nobody was wearing masks. It was amazing to see people in person again and also a little bit scary.
0: Very cool. Aaron. one cool thing. Uh, I, I don't know
5: what this is going to say about me, but <laughs> something I've been working on that I'm excited about is uh, SIA recently released in partnership with Wood Mackenzie, the U.S. solar market Insight report for Q2 of 2021. And I was making a little heat map of the states that have moved around the most in terms of PV installation in, in Q1 and Q2 of, um, of this year. And uh, it, it looks like there are some some names on the list that are really interesting, like Indiana, Michigan, Maine, Iowa, Oregon, um, Missouri, where I have a lot of family. Places that you know, when I started in this industry ten years ago, were were not on the map really. In many cases, as as um, potential solar markets are now moving quickly up the list, and it's it's really exciting to see this like. Um, this nationwide adoption of this technology kind of hit full stride, I feel
0: like um, all,
5: all over the country.
0: That's great. Those were all great, one cool things. I think this is our, our new segment. That was much more interesting than my than my previous question. So thank you everybody in the audience for joining us today. Thank you to our panelists. I am gonna ask our panelists to just stop your video because I wanna keep the Zoom meeting going so people can f- uh, pull the links, but we really appreciate it all of our guests and all of the time and their, their love and their support for the industry. So that's it for the show today. We will see you next time. Thanks a lot for coming.